0: man, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. You ought to be commended here on the front end for being here in the snow. I did not realize uh, we were going to have such compromised weather here this morning. So I commend you for not only being out and about on a Sunday morning. I commend you that it's snowing and you're still here. uh, And I commend you that you got here uh, apparently safely uh, so thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Luke. I am one of the pastors here. To catch you up, if you're, if you're new here, if this is your first time or uh, first time back in a while, where we're at right now is week four of a series that we're calling Holy Habits. Uh, what is true, and we've said this often over the last few weeks, is if you have healthy habits and they're done consistently, that will have healthy results. We believe that, and there's a ton of value there. We are pushing all of us towards holy habits because holy habits done consistently will have holy results, which we think bring even more value than just healthy results. That's where we've been for four weeks. We're gonna be there again today. We're gonna be there next week, and then we're gonna go a different direction in February. So uh, holy habits week four is where we're at right now. Um, We think, as, as we've said often, that holy habits done consistently will have holy results, which the benefit of that is that your circumstances will not have impact on the results that you have. What is true about holy habits is if they are done well and consistently, you could have incredible circumstances or really poor circumstances, But holy habits have results that lead you to a flourishing life. And so what we want for you is a flourishing life, a flourishing marriage and family and career. And to get there, it's through habits and specifically habits that lead you into the person of Jesus. What we have said often, you heard one value multiplication, to start off the service, that we value Jesus doing things and transforming lives, not just here in Columbus and at Ohio State, but also all around the world. That's why we're sending students overseas. But one of the things we value, we say, is becoming. And how we talk about that is we believe the pathway to a flourishing life is becoming more like Jesus. That's actually how you can step into the flourishing pathway. So anything you do to become more like Jesus will allow you to step further and further into that lifestyle. That's what holy habits is all about. Now, up to this point, we've talked about three. One, adding reading your Bible to your habits, adding prayer, and third, adding rest. All of those habits leading you to be more healthy that will have holy results. Now, where we're going here this morning is something Jesus talked about often. In fact, if you collected everything Jesus says on this particular habit, it would work out to be about 15% of anything we have recorded in the words of Jesus, which to put into context is more than Jesus spoke about heaven and hell combined. Jesus often talked about this particular habit, but the problem is there's a tightness that people can feel when we bring up this subject. And so what I want to do on the front end is, is relieve a little bit of tightness, relieve a little bit of pressure, get you breathing nice and easy as we enter into the text here this morning, because I want you to know on the front end that the, the entire series is to push you as a person into what would allow you to flourish. You're going to hear that often. That's our motivation. We don't have another motivation. What we want is holy habits for you, not holy habits from you. We want all of this for you. Here's why I say that, because what we're talking about this morning can at times come with a lot of manipulation. Sometimes people can feel hurt because there's different angles, there's gross deception, there's desires to take advantage, all in this particular habit. And so what I wanna say on the front end is we want for you, not from you. We want you to step in to be more like Jesus because of what that means for you. Now, when I, was, uh, when I was in high school, I, I had a good friend who had this murdered out Tahoe, totally blacked out, uh, tinted windows. And I don't know how this was legal, but my friend uh, who had the new Tahoe, he worked it, some relationship with the fire department, which made him have these ice blue lights inside of the Tahoe. So it was like right on the windshield. So he had a particular role where if there was a fire or an emergency, he now had a vehicle where he could turn on those lights. It looked like an undercover police officer and people would pull over and get out of the way and he could get to emergencies quickly. Uh, A friend of mine and I decided uh, that it would be fun to borrow our, our friend's car And we were going to go to another one of our friend's houses who we had a pretty good relationship with him and his parents and we were going to roll in there uh, with the lights going and we thought it would be this like funny joke prank that like hey the police are here to arrest somebody in the family that was the intention Uh, so we get into this neighborhood we flip on the lights i'm in the passenger seat we flip on the lights we pull into the driveway of our friend's house And we're sitting there, nothing immediately happens. And so we're thinking, okay, one of two things, if they don't just like notice somebody pulled into the driveway, which is a possibility, then do we just leave? Do we try and get their attention? Like, you know, what's the decision right now? And right when we're about to make a decision to call quits on it, my friend's mom comes out of their house, she walks into the driveway, uh, drops down to her knees and just starts weeping. And immediately I'm, I'm now like in a real bad spot. I, I, I look over at my friend, like very concerned, like what's happening? I don't know what's going on. Do you know what's going on? He doesn't know. The dad comes out, he drops down to one knee. He starts consoling his wife. Our friend comes out very concerned. Now there's this big emotional scene in the driveway What they don't know is it's me and our other friend just sitting in the car. Now we don't know, do we just get out of here and not tell them it's us? Do we get out of the car? We don't know what to do. Uh, So we decide we're just gonna play it out and we're just gonna sit there. Uh, And so we sit there and eventually the mom stands up and she walks her way to the car. And so we feel like, okay, you know, the gig's up, we gotta come out and, and tell her that it's us. So we get out of the car and even in this, I'm thinking, I think I just impersonated a police officer which comes with legitimate jail time and fines. The the person I'm sitting next to has a full scholarship to play football at Maryland. He's now concerned that's over. Like I'm losing scholarship. Like we're in pretty serious trouble. We get out of the car and, and the mom notices it's us. And immediately her emotions change into still high emotions but just absolute rage and anger at us and and we're still standing there very confused like okay we understand now joke didn't land but on the other side is like what did happen what did happen she tells us that her worst fear and an absolute nightmare of a situation for her as a mom is our friend had an older brother who had gotten himself into trouble often in his life and her worst fear was that there was going to be a day when the police would roll into their driveway to communicate that your older son has done some things and he is now dead. And so we're, we, we roll in with the police lights going and she thinks my oldest son has made some poor choices and he's now dead. And we're just like sitting in the car, like, isn't this funny? What's true is the best effort we had to communicate our intentions didn't calm this lady down. And I don't blame her. Because sometimes when you have confused intentions, that can really be painful and it can really hurt people. For the the intentions to not be clear or for you to have intentions that seem like manipulation or it seems like it can hurt confused intentions leads to a lot of pain. That is why I want to say our intention entering into habit number four here this morning, our intention is to help you and usher you into the full life that Jesus has for you. That's Jesus's intention as we enter into the text. So if you have a Bible, great time to grab it. If you don't have a Bible, uh, as always, there are some Bibles out on the table in the lobby. We would love for you to just grab one of those on your way out. Uh, If you have a digital copy of the Bible, that's great too. Uh, What we're talking about here this morning is giving. The holy habit we want to help usher you into life with is giving. Fortunately for us, Jesus has some really helpful things to say about this. So we're going to go to a couple different places. The first place we're going to go is Mark chapter 10. So uh, you can find that in the back third of your Bible. There's a table of contents page. In the front, that would be really helpful for you to navigate there quickly. If you have a device and want to pull it up that way, that would be great too. Here's what Jesus uh, is going to say. He's again in a crowd of people and a man comes and approaches him. And here's the scene we have in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, and you shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all of these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, right in this moment, the person who's an eyewitness account watching this conversation unfold is observing Jesus's interaction with this man. And it is his opinion that what Jesus is about to say is a demonstration of specific and special love. Like Jesus is just not filling dialogue space. What he's about to say is a demonstration of love. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And here's what he said, one thing you lack Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Here's the invitation in Jesus's mind. You have a lot of earthly wealth. The invitation is you can exchange that earthly wealth for heavenly wealth. And I'll even add something sweeter to the pot. Once you make that great exchange, you can come and follow me. The man unconvinced, responds in verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He decides that neither of those invitations are that attractive. So pretty upset, he leaves and he goes about his life. Now, according to Jesus, there are a couple options. And one of the options available is to pursue heavenly wealth and not earthly wealth. But in Jesus's mind, he's not just talking to a man that has a lot of earthly wealth. First of all, he's not, he's not saying that earthly wealth is even incorrect. He's not saying it's wrong. In fact, Jesus often is around wealthy people, and he never condemns them for being wealthy. That, that's not Jesus's point ever. But what he says is, you can exchange this earthly wealth and come on the other side and have heavenly wealth. And Jesus is pointing to the fact that you can make that exchange. And if you don't make that exchange, it's not that it's just wrong, it's just plain not smart. Like there is reward that comes with being a giver that you can step into. And if you decide not to step into it, it's not that it's just wrong, it's that why wouldn't you want the reward? Why wouldn't you want what comes with heavenly wealth? That's what doesn't make sense to Jesus. And so he's using reward language because he's convinced if this man understood the reward that came with generous giving, he would quickly be a generous giver. Like, man, if he could just convince him of the sweetness that comes with generous giving. He wouldn't have to try to convince him. He would see the reward, see it as valuable, and then give generously, natural outcome, to get the results that we want. Now, we are, as human beings, people that are wired in a way where we give ourselves to what we find value in, what we like the results of, and the places we find reward. There's something called Hell Week. If you want to be a Navy SEAL... You at some point have to go through hell week. Here's a little bit of a description of hell week. It's about five and a half days long. And in total, you would get four hours of sleep. That's not four hours of sleep every single night for five days. That's in five and a half days, you would get a total of four hours of sleep. Here, here's what they say. Hell week tests physical endurance, mental toughness, pain, pain, and cold tolerance, which I would be really curious to know how you test somebody legally. How do you test somebody's pain tolerance? They figured it out. Uh, You test teamwork, attitude, your ability to perform under high physical and mental stress and sleep deprivation. There are times they talk about will will they do uh, paddle boats out in the ocean And it's like for some of these guys, hours since they've even sat down, days since they've had an opportunity to close their eyes. And what happens often during hell week is guys will be paddling these boats in the ocean and they'll just like on a whim, just like right asleep. And so people in the boat have to be aware because it's likely that one of these candidates is gonna fall out of the boat sleeping because of the sleep deprivation. So you just have to grab them pulling back into the boat, and you just like keep paddling. That's a very normal thing. Here's what else they say. Trainees are constantly in motion, running, swimming, paddling, carrying boats on their heads, doing log PT, sit-ups, push-ups, rolling in the sand, slogging through mud, paddling boats, and doing surf passage. Being still can be just as challenging when you're standing intermittently in formation soaking wet on the beach up to your waist in water with cold ocean wind cutting through you. Mud covers uniforms, hands, faces, everything but the eyes. The sand chafes raw skin and the salt water makes cuts burn. I had a conversation with somebody who went through this. He told me that they give him these like dinner packets, but there's never any time to eat dinner. It's like the the irony, almost like a teaser, like, hey, here's dinner, can't have it. So he decided at one point, he, he made this like spaghetti thing, and he didn't have any time, so he just scooped it up, threw it into his cargo pockets, and intermittently throughout the day, when he had a free second, he would just pinch himself some pasta from his super sandy pocket and just eat it. That, that's like how he's eating dinner. And, if, and a legitimate question is, why would somebody go through that? Valid question. Why would somebody put themselves through something that significantly difficult? And the answer is because they value the result, because they value the reward. Why do you get up early? Why do you work out? Why do you eat what doesn't taste good? Why do you study long hours? Why do you do assignments that aren't enjoyable? Why do you have a job? The answer to all of these questions is exactly the same, because you value the reward because you value the result. It is Jesus's opinion that if you could taste and see the reward in the result of generous giving, he wouldn't have to convince you to do it. What's true about all of us in the room is we do not have a natural bend towards loss. We have a natural bend towards gain. And Jesus is actually using that natural bend to say what feels like loss in being a generous giver is actually immeasurable gain. There's reward that comes with generous giving. If you taste that, you'll want that. Heavenly reward is available. Now, I I want to say too, you shouldn't feel guilty about doing things because of reward on the other end. In fact, reward is not a man-made invention. Reward is God's idea. It is Jesus's position to communicate reward by way of motivation. If you knew the reward, you would be motivated. This is the point of Jesus, and he talks about generous giving so that it can be a motivation. Now, Jesus and other authors talk about this reward in other places. They talk about it often, specifically as it gets to giving, specifically as it relates to giving. Jesus says this, it, that's recorded by other eyewitness accounts in Acts 20, 35. Here's what Jesus says. It is better to give than to receive. And if we're often, that sounds like one of the most ridiculous statements he could make. Because again, if, if I'm, If I'm giving, it means I have loss and gaining is a plus. And so it doesn't make sense that I would give and that be better in the end. But Jesus has, again, eyes on reward. Other writers in your Bible, they've talked about reward as well. Probably one of the most wealthy people in the history of the world. That's not a Christian opinion. That's a history opinion is a guy named Solomon. Here's what he wrote and recorded to give to people he loved. He says this, the generous man will be prosperous in Proverbs eleven twenty four, In Proverbs 19, 17, he says, the one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for the good deed. Proverbs 22, 9, he who is generous will be blessed. Proverbs 28, 27, he who gives to the poor will never want. There's another author named Luke, who wrote the book of Luke from eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And he records Jesus saying this in Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. There's another author in your Bible who had very little that the earth would call valuable. Very little reward on the earthly side, but he has given his life to leverage what he can for heavenly reward. He writes a letter to a local church in the city of Corinth, and here's what he says. He says, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, if you give sparingly, you'll have little reward. But if you give bountifully, you're going to roll in your reward. There's another writer, the book of Hebrews, who describes a man named Moses, who's a prominent character in the Bible. Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. He says this when, when speaking about Moses, Hebrews 11:26. Moses left Egypt's treasures. He left everything the earth could have to offer him as a prince of Egypt. And here's what it says, because he was looking ahead to his reward. It's the opinion of so many of the biblical authors and Jesus especially that there is heavenly reward available to givers. And if you understood that and could taste it, you would happily exchange earthly wealth for heavenly wealth. You, you You would happily go that direction. The full flourishing life available to us, it can't come without generous giving. There's another layer we could step into in flourishing life that's not circumstantial. And to get there, we have to be generous givers. That's the invitation, to be generous givers. Now, I want to define for us a little bit the flourishing life because I think Jesus doesn't just use like you'll be blessed language, you'll have a flourishing life. He's actually gonna get a little bit more specific. And I wanna zoom on one particular thing Jesus says that is part of the reward. That when I first like tasted this reward, I thought, man, this doesn't come natural to me, but I want this reward. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter six, which if you wanna turn there, that's great. Uh, if you don't wanna turn there, jot it down, that's great. If you just wanna listen, now that's great as well. Here's what he says in Matthew 6, 9, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Those are, all, those are all very practical, like not spiritual reasons. Verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal like store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not because it's right, but because it's smart. Jesus is not just making a logical appeal, he's making an emotional appeal. Invest in what matters most. You can't take earthly treasures with you, but you can send them on ahead. You can't exchange them for heavenly treasures and heavenly wealth. Why wouldn't you do that if you could? That's the appeal of Jesus. There's a quote a man named Jim Elliott said. He says this, "No, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This is the appeal to givers. This is the appeal of Jesus. And he gets a little bit more specific in verse 21. Here's what he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be Also. Your heart will follow your treasure. That's incredible news. That's like great news for us. Because what it means is we can decide where our heart treasures things. And all we have to do is simply put our resources there. Like your heart will never value over the top that which is empty of your money and resources. This is, this is practical, great news. Put your money in what matters most and your heart will follow that. What a great reward. The problem is that all of us likely have a bend towards putting our heart in that which can't live up to sustain it. It's like earthly treasures. Like, man, I'm gonna put my money there. I'm gonna invest I'm gonna leverage that which I can to gain earthly wealth. The problem is I will put expectations on that wealth to do something in my heart that it cannot do. One of the, one of the greatest damages that can happen in your relationship and in your marriage and in your family is misplaced expectations or expectations that are uncommunicated. I remember before Shaylin and I got married, uh, we sat down with my uncle and aunt one time and they said, hands down, the greatest source of their conflict was unmet, uncommunicated expectations. And I was like, that's a whole lot of negatives. Do they double negatives? I was a little confused. And then when we actually started talking about it, it's like, I have expectations. Sometimes I don't even know what my expectations are until they're unmet. And now I'm frustrated. And now Shaylin and I are in conflict because I put expectations on her that she couldn't possibly live up to. One of the things you'll be pressed to as you become more like Jesus is not putting expectations in things that can't hold that weight. You'll put your joy in things that can't hold it. You'll put your identity in things that are flimsy. You'll put your satisfaction and contentment at things that can come and go. And Jesus is calling us into life to say, earthly treasures, it's not actually gonna fill your soul the way that you think it will but you can exchange it, you can leverage that to find heavenly treasure and heavenly wealth that will fill the soul, that will have eternal impact. Why wouldn't you wanna make that exchange if you could? Take it from some of the most wealthy people to have ever lived that, that don't claim Christianity. John D. Rockefeller has said this, I've made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Henry Ford has said this, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. A guy named John Jacob Astor, who died in the Titanic, was one of the wealthiest people in the world at the time. He he was predicted to have about 87 million at that point in the world, which would equal about two and a half billion today. Here's a famous quote of his. I am the most miserable man on earth which would make him about two things. One, the wealthiest man roughly on earth, and two, the most miserable man on earth. Why? Because when we put our expectation on earthly treasures to do something it was never intended to do, we will be disappointed. We will be crushed. It can't hold the weight. We've got to make the exchange for your sake and for my sake. We've got to make the exchange. We do that through being generous givers. Now, I want to be clear at at what Jesus is trying to say. He was around wealthy people often. And again, he never condemned them for being wealthy. If you're wealthy, if you have family that's wealthy, there is no condemnation for that. Jesus' point is that you can, as a wealthy person, you can, as a poor person, you can, anywhere in between, as a person, leverage what he has given you and exchange earthly wealth for heavenly wealth. And if you could just taste that reward, if you could just taste it, that would become something you're excited and long to do. Just make that exchange. To be a generous giver frees our heart from anxiety and from stress and from putting all this expectation and weight on what can't hold it and can't sustain it. This is an amazing reward. Even if there wasn't heavenly treasure, it would be an amazing reward today to not be so consumed with money and materialism. And the next thing I want to get, imagine the freedom you would feel mentally Imagine the emotional health you would have if you didn't put expectation in things that couldn't fulfill it and instead exchanged it and invested it in what ultimately matters and what actually has foundation to hold and sustain your soul. Now, what Jesus is trying to do is give people with any type of wealth a vision for leveraging it for greater blessing and reward. And I want to give you an example. Uh, My uncle... In my grandpa by many people in the room would be uh, labeled as wealthy. And I remember there was a time when I was like in middle school, our family, the whole Peterson family went on vacation. So that's like grandpa and grandma, my dad, his three brothers and the whole family. So there was 23 of us total. We were in Tennessee, which was the last time I was in Tennessee. And we were in Tennessee. We stayed at these like, this like condo, place. And there was one day, I don't remember why, but we found ourselves, the whole Peterson family in a mall. Uh, I don't know if it was like food court. They knew people were going to complain about meals. And so like, just go to the food court and people can get what they want. And we're walking through the mall, all 23 of us. And we walk by a Van Heusen, which I don't know how familiar you are with a Van Heusen store, but it's like button up shirts and nice dress pants. And that's like the clientele they're going for. We walk by a Van Heusen, and there's a sign on the Van Heusen, uh like glass wall that says, uh, "To my knowledge, 25 percent off everything in the store." And that intrigues my uncle. And so he walks into the Van Heusen, and he goes up to the cashier and says, "Hey, can I uh, speak to the manager?" And as like a normal cashier would be, like very sheepish, like, okay, is everything okay? And he's like, yeah, no, everything's fine. If, if, you're, if a manager's here, I'd love to speak to the manager. So the manager comes out and my uncle says, if you make it 30% off, uh, I would like to buy everything in this store. And the guy's like, ha ha. And he's like, no, I'm dead, I'm dead serious. So the manager's like, I can't make that decision. I'm not qualified. So they call the corporate office. Uh, the corporate office says, for sure, just like, let them do it. So in our family goes into Van Houston. It's like one o'clock in the afternoon. They grab one of those hooks. They like totally close the store at this point. So it's just our family in this Van Houston. We all split up. we're like, I'm like pressing shirts together, taking them off the hook bringing them over, laying them down. If you're familiar with button-up shirts, an absurd amount of pins in some of those. And so we're pulling all of these pins out. We realized pretty quickly, Van Heusen doesn't have near the amount of bags that would be necessary to put all of their merchandise in. And so uh, we go, we find garbage bags from a custodian. We're coming back. Now, remember, our entire family is on vacation. We can't like run these somewhere. Nobody in our families from Tennessee, so we all like drove in. This is like very inconvenient. We're stuffing all of these like Van Heusen clothes into these garbage bags. The way home, Tennessee to Pennsylvania, literally sitting with a garbage bag of Van Heusen on my lap. All of these garbage bags split up between the families because my uncle and grandpa knew of a need in Argentina where there was men and women studying to become uh, professionals in a bunch of different areas who were far too poor to have that type of clothing on their own. And so we said, hey, I can leverage what I have. So in we go, clean out an entire store and 100% of that is sent overseas. And if you think to yourself that like, was that a good call or not? I remember being like 10 years old. My parents gave me a fresh Hondo I could spend on anything for vacation. And I haven't made the decision yet. I'm just sitting on that hondo, burning a hole in my pocket. And at one point, I walk up to my uncle, almost emotional, like as a 10-year-old kid where it's embarrassing at that age. I walk up to the table and I'm like, hey, I don't, I don't know like, what I wanna spend this on anyways. And so like, I just wanna contribute to like, what's going on here. So I just throw my 100 down, drop in the bucket at the end of the day. Drop in the bucket. But I remember what was going on in my heart. To say, man, there, there seems to be a ton of value in what I'm watching happening here. I want to be a part of it. I want to leverage, even if it's a little bit, what I can to be a part of this. My uncle has done that two other times for different things. There was a time where there was a sale on like athletic shoes. And so he walks up and says, I'd like to buy every athletic shoe that you have. And again, the reactions are are priceless. It would be worth doing just to see the employee reaction. He also did it with rollerblades, pretty random. But I remember being a kid in our garage, being wall to wall, floor to ceiling with rollerblades, I wasn't allowed to touch or have. Because in both of these situations, these shoes, there was a need. Rollerblades, there was an opportunity to send these places where people were less fortunate, had an opportunity to have something special, to have, for the first time, a pair of new shoes just on their own. Fortunately, I've been in some of these generous giving environments to learn that you couldn't pay generous givers enough to keep them from giving. You literally could not hand generous givers enough wealth and money that would keep them from being generous. Why? Because they've tasted the reward. They've exchanged treasure over here for treasure over there. And even if you didn't have to wait till the end, it would be worth it for your own heart to engage in generous giving, to invest in what matters most, It would be good for you even right now. And Jesus gives vision to a reward that's not even now, but is later. It's not just wrong to drive towards earthly wealth. It's just in Jesus's mind, not even an intelligent move. Why would you give yourself to what is clearly second best? That's the argument of Jesus. We could be givers. Why wouldn't we? All of this giving language, all of this reward language doesn't come from somebody who quickly tells us to do things that he is unwilling to do. All of the push from the very beginning of all of this is so that you could flourish. Yet Jesus does a level of giving, not even so that he could flourish, but again, so that we could flourish. We give so that we can live a full life. He gives to have his life taken away. He doesn't just leverage his time and his energy and his resources. He leverages his hands and his feet and the flesh on his back and his whole body and his blood. He leverages it all. He gives it all again so that you and I can step into life not only earning the right to call us to generous giving, but earning the invitation. It's like Jesus has the authority to say, you need to be generous givers for no other reason than I'm Jesus, I've given an example and you just should do it. He's earned that right, yet he doesn't even lead that way. He's earned the right yet says, hey, there is reward for you. There's reward eternally, and there's reward right now. If you could just taste that reward, I promise it'll motivate you. Yet, many of us, just like the man he had a conversation with in Mark 10, we evaluate the plus minus, we evaluate the loss gain, and we're not exactly convinced that it is better, according to Jesus, to give than to receive. We're not convinced. And Jesus will graciously continue to call us to the reward. Don't feel guilty about the reward. Let it motivate you. There is reward. Be a generous giver. Why would we not want that? Here's one last statement from a man named Hudson Taylor who gave 51 years of his life to China. And In many ways, he's seen as kind of like a forefather of missions work who moved over there just to bring the gospel over there, here's what he said, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave away, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. I want that true of me. I want that true of us. I want that true of our church. Holy habits designed to lead you to holy results so that you can flourish, so that I can flourish. Father, may we leave here. May we be stirred up and drawn into being reward-driven people. May we even evaluate the places that drive us now to evaluate where are the places that I see greatest reward evidenced in how I give my life and how I give my time. Would you in wisdom give us eyes to what we value most. Would you in wisdom give us eyes to rewards that drive us? And would you convince us through your strength and your mercy and your grace to taste good rewards with giving so that it will again convince us to come back and continue resting in reward. God, would you lead us there? We need your power. We are so desperate and so dependent. We need your power if we're gonna do it. And so would you do it? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the unique things about our relationship with God is that he He doesn't need our resources. It's not like God calls us to be givers because He needs. He actually calls us to be givers because we need. I need the results of giving. He doesn't need the results of giving. With heaven and earth at his disposal, the treasure that's ever been created in the world is at his disposal. He doesn't need our resources. We give for our benefit and for his name to be glorified and for his name to be pushed to the ends of the earth. And one of the unique things we have an opportunity to do every Sunday morning is give not just our resources, but our praise and our worship. We have an opportunity with open hands and not much of value still stand up and worship a God who continues to be good, who continues to call us into the better life. And when we fail and when we fall, continues to show up, extend grace and invite us into what's better time and time again. We have an opportunity here as we close out our service to stand up and give what is valuable. Give to God what he asks for and give to God what is good for us and good for our souls. And that's glory, praise and worship for who he is and what he's done. So if you would stand with us, we're gonna to continue to sing.